0: One, two, three, four. The Heracliden Museum was founded by Mr. and Mrs. Firos in 2004 and is composed of two buildings in the historic district of this year, next to the Acropolis, the Ancient Agora, and the Temple of Hephaestus. Initially, the museum focused on immense artistic exhibitions with artists such as M.C. Escher, Carol Wax, and various others. Now, the museum has transformed its focus onto technology within the ancient Greek culture and is ran by many talented individuals.
1: Lenny and Pantelis Michikou, mm. yeah. welcome to The Creative Process. We're now here in the Heracliden Museum.
2: Founded in uh, 2000.
1: on, on, uh, 2004
3: and for the first 10 years was dedicated to art. And because uh, the main exhibition was about Maurice E. C. Escher, people knew it as an Escher museum, and uh, the educational program was about art and mathematics. But uh, besides Escher, the artist we were shown was Degas, Lautrec, Moon, Kepler, Moon, Constantine Xenakis, and others. Basarelli. So Basarelli, yeah. of course, and uh, from 2014, the museum was dedicated to educational uh, exhibitions about uh, science and art, mathematics and art again. And the first exhibition was a, a photograph exhibition to Athens just to celebrate the 10th uh, ye- the, the f- tenth uh, anniversary, the anniversary yes. And after this... This
2: time, hmm? this building was not part of the museum. Yes,
3: it was open 2014 mm-hmm. for the first decade of the museum, mm-hmm. yes? Yeah. And the exhibition was uh, this uh, photography exhibition about Athens. But then we had exhibition about ancient Greek technology, clefsis, and navigation of ancient Greeks, and. Uh, Naval history
2: and navigation.
3: Yes. Naval history and navigation. Then we had an exchange of exhibitions with ancient Chinese technology.
1: With the
3: Eureka Show, yes? Yes, the Eureka, the Eureka Show. Was, so the total collection of the museum traveled to Beijing mm-hmm. and the two buildings here, this one we are now and the second one, were uh, showing ancient Greek, ancient Chinese technology. It was a great exhibition, it lasted about one year, thousands of visitors, students, programs, shows, events, tea parties. it was great (laughs) great. also Eureka had a wonderful uh, show to not only to Beijing but to to others uh, to other uh, cities uh, around Shandong Jinan Jinan. Mm -hmm. yes and from August to ha- la- from the last year exhibition, uh, Eureka returned to its home mm. and this is uh, the, first un- the first sections we are showing because the whole uh, collection is very big, about 60 exhibits 60, 60 exhibits and uh, counting because we are creating more and more with the help of Mr. Tassios. Oh, yes. Yes, we just... we, uh, yes, we create exhibits uh, yeah. every with any chance, let's yeah. say. So, the first section, the Claydon building, is yes. about automata and Antikythera mechanism, and here at Apostolo Pavlo Street is about the technology of ancient, war technology of ancient Greeks.
2: The founders of the museum, Mr. Paul Firoz and Mrs. Anna Belinda Firoz, they have the vision of the museum, creating the museum, and the vision of creating a a technological museum uh, with its educational program. They are Greek Americans, they live half the year in the States, half the year in Greek. Uh, They love art, they love technology, They love science, they love Greece, they love children.
3: (laughs) The most important visitor of our museum are children. They know it
2: and they support us to keep working, to keep doing our job. Mr. and Mrs. Feroz.
1: And we're just walking through the military uh, portion of the exhibit. Mm -hmm.
2: So this is the section of War Technology of the Ancient Greeks. And in the ground floor we have... It's dedicated the whole floor in uh, trireme, the ancient Athenian ship that has won the naval battle in Salamis two thousand and five hundred years ago. Here we have a model of the ship, how the oars have been placed in the ship, and uh, with just focusing the. Uh, fact that the main weapon of the ship was this one. It's the battering ram. It's made from bronze and it just hits the opponent and sink the ship, let's say the Persian ship, during the...
3: Uh, the ship of the enemy.
2: Yeah. Yes. You have to notice that in uh, 3 a.m. we have three rows of oars uh, and we have 170 rowers in the ship you can read it here the total crew was let's say 210 men from which only 10 or 16 were soldiers they have no soldiers on the ship it just had the battering
3: the ship itself was the weapon oh that's yeah. so yes mm-hmm. yes so
2: this, is, was, this was the uh, Athenian trireme uh, during the 5th century BC. If you want to see it in a... So this is the ship, how it was, looks like. This is a trireme. it's a model, I think it's how long? 2, two meters long. Yes. Uh, the, the real one was less than 40 meters long and less than 5 meters in wide. So it was fast, flexible, it was moving fast, and it can turn very easily. And the uh, flexibility and the fast movement of the ship was used during the battle in Salamis. It's uh, here a narrow space between Attica, Athens, and Salamis in a small island. Right in front of the Athenian riviera, let's call it Riviera. Mm-hmm. So the Greeks were these and these are the Persians.
1: Oh right. Okay, we're looking at a diagram. Yes. Yes.
2: They just moved back and the person goes ahead and then they hit them with the battery grams All Right. And just this was the end of the battle. Right. It was just let's say Less than 10 hours it lasts, the battle in Salamis. So once the Persians were defeated, it was the last time that they have visited Europe. They just throw back in Asia and from then until now, we say that the Western civilization was saved by the Asian from this uh,
1: invention. From, the from this battle. Yes, mm. and by these ships that were barely manned. It's, yeah. a, it's amazing advances. And you, we've also gone through other exhibits which we're visiting soon. It is a kind of a robot, early robot. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh.
2: So they just built, let's say, 200 ships for the battle in Salamis. After the end of the battle, they, had, they built houses, we call them shipsets. Shipsets. Ah, sets, shipsets. just to keep them inside, inside mm-hmm. to, protect them. to protect them from the seawater, because it was made from pine and the pine is very sensitive in seawater so they dragged them out in the blood to protect them from the seawater they have built uh, ship sets for all 380 triremes around the Piraeus. This is Piraeus. This is the main port. These are two smaller ports. And these are the long walls here is Athens. The long walls that surround the Piraeus. The street that connects Athens with Thespis. Athens.
3: It is, <laughs> uh, after Acropolis and Parthenon, these uh, buildings were the most important. The most amazing, also. The most amazing, yes.
2: Yeah. Because they are long. They are one hundred more than 100 uh, metres long and uh, maybe 20 metres wide. So they are big buildings. Wow. And they, one can see them from anywhere.
1: So they're almost... One of the biggest buildings, just to yeah. the ships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes, the necessity of having to build houses for your boats, uh, uh, brought about they have technology. Yes, yeah.
2: we know exactly how it looks because we have inscriptions that we, can, we found them and they are in the Archaeological Museum of Athens. Wow. And it describes exactly how a national looks like or it was built like.
3: Yes, as we'd say, the specifications for the construction of the stone arsenal
1: for hanging from parts of warships.
2: And that's from 4th uh, century BC. Yes.
1: And part of this, uh, the Heracliton Museums, is very big on educational initiatives mm-hmm. and involving. so how are you involved students? Do you, do you involve them in making models or what, how, how do you do that aspect in of
2: it? This, in this uh, side it's of hard. the building, of uh, in this building of the mm-hmm. museum, we make them draw something mm-hmm. yes. uh, that it's connecting with the exhibits, mm-hmm. and we have some tests mm-hmm. if someone understands some or knows the history. Some papers. Some papers. Mm-hmm. They fulfill some papers, and in the, in upstairs we have hands-on exhibits where the small kids they can play mm-hmm. with telecommunication or enigma that uh, yes. comes yes. from the ancient Greeks. So the exhibit in this floor is starting from mythology. Here we can see Ephesus, the god of fire, the technological god of ancient Greek that made some weapons for shield and uh, helmet for Achilles. And Ephesus, Give them to Thetis, the mother of Achilles. The most amazing part of the panoply of the armor of Achilles, as is it described by Homer, is his shield. Homer dedicates more than 130 lines in *Iliad* for describing the shield of Achilles. They say that it's made from three parts, it's copper, gold, and tin. Thus as Omer says, when Aeneas, hero of Troy, throws a spear against Achilles, spear the shield for the layer of gold, gift of the god. They say that just pass the first layers Mm -hmm. made of copper, but he cannot pass the golden of the shield. Let's say that this is a myth, mm-hmm. but Mr. Pippetis, Profe- Professor Pippetis, he made an experiment with using a, a model in a computer of a shield made by copper golden tin. And he surprisingly see that spear cannot penetrate the shield. So we have a myth that comes to No, it. The most part of the properties of the shield
3: it's its okay.
2: his form, its oh, form, his form, not, form. not yes. its uh, layers that it's yeah. made of. The form of the shield it's not. It's hard to be penetrated the by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes,
3: yes. So we. So this is
2: mythology and technology. We combine it, and we can explain that in children that. It contains part of truth. You can find truth in the myth, mm. but it's said scientifically, scientifically explained.
1: No, it's it's so important. Yes, of course. And everywhere in Athens, I think, is this uh, sense of history and myth. But we built our realities. We have, yeah. we are living with these archetypes around us, and we meet these archetypes too. So we meet <laughs> <And> it. <laughs> and in <we> some,
2: <laughs> in some kind, in some places or some aspects of uh, technology or our lessons, we leave some myth because children needs a myth mm-hmm. to build his personality.
1: And also to create inventions like this, if you yes. don't have a dream, you have to dream it first. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's we have to,
2: to make them to wake mm-hmm. a spirit of creating and searching. And, and, searching.
3: and wondering why.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know it's so nice because as as you said you you read these um, epic poems and yes. you but it's nice that you can see you can uh, see this oh this is how it was uh, made been acted of, out the
3: spirit of Ulysses. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so this is a thorax. It's rather interesting to see how it was written in Linear B Grammiki Vita. The the way that the Mycenaeans write before uh, let's say 3,000 four, four or 4,000 years from now. it's written In Greek, thoracas, thorax. Right. It's a word that survives for 4,000 years. This is a copy of uh, Mycenaean thorax. It's made from bronze, mm. copper, and tin. It covers the whole body of a... Uh, uh, soldier, the helmet was made by how it called wild pink
1: tooth. Well, yeah. yeah,
2: it's not offering something in the uh, helmet itself, but it's amazing to see someone with this one.
4: You
1: should describe these whale teeth, and they're they're curved into this wonderful, not quite a spiral shape, but they're they're yeah. curved. And the like design is wonderful. Yes, like a
2: wave. Yeah. It goes to the top like a wave. This one are made from plastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm it's not guilty. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. But the, the rest of the armor was made using the technique of the ancient Greeks. Wow. Uh, only a hammer and nothing else. And fire. And fire. Yes. And part of the yes, oh. hammer oh, wow! Oh, okay. fire, yes. yes. Fire. So this is tin and copper thorax, armor. We have to know that in this time, during this period, not copper, neither tin was found in Greece. Copper comes from Cyprus, and the name of Cyprus means copper. It derives from copper. And tin comes from Afghanistan or Cornwall, Britain. Oh, right. So they have connections and trade between... Far East and Far West. That means that people during this time, 2000 years BC, they have trade connection between them.
1: I know it's it's hard to think about. They were, we were already so globalized, even with well, I guess there's amazing ships. You could yeah. accomplish yes. things like mm-hmm. that. Yes. Mr. Tassios says
3: that ancient Greeks uh, had technology in their DNA. Yes. And you can understand this in their religion because they had a god for technology, Hephaestus. Oh, yes. yes, yes. Exactly. And I remember it while we were discussing about this, the shield and uh, th- th- thorax and, mm-hmm. uh, yes. and... Yes. they were made with fire and a hammer. And this was doing a uh, god, Hephaestus.
2: Packs we can only handle in the middle of the shield, so you can use it easily and you can use it as a weapon, not un- only as a shield to protect you, but you can attack to your enemy with your shield. And uh, the arm becomes lighter, so the soldier can mo- move fast. It's not a question of physical power, but of tactics and weapons.
1: And during this period, I guess young men were being, i not inscripted, but when they were entering this kind of life, at what age?
2: It depends. In Sparta, mm-hmm. from seven,
1: seven
3: years, from seven. Seven, oh. yes. Yes. Yes.
2: the state separates the child from his mother, from yeah. his family, and becomes a soldier.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know if it will. So it becomes a soldier from seven years old. It's a, a rather a, a job for the state to raise the child, not from, for the family. From the
1: family, yes. Well,
2: in it, Athens it's completely yes, different. Yes. In Athens they just gather soldiers if they need them. They call for soldiers mm-hmm. if they have a war and then they go there. They have a, a fast education in weapons, and that's it. But in Sparta, it's completely different. Yeah.
3: Athenians were more sophisticated, but yeah. they won the most important wars. Yeah. Athenian democracy was that won the wars. Yeah, yeah. democracy. Democracy. Yes. Athenians so, had the soldiers democracy. Soldiers
2: have too many things to lose, and especially freedom. For themselves, so um, it was easier for them to fight, or they wanted more. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
1: Oh, you know, I think it does. It motivates and diplomacy.
2: So, these are the, the big weapons yes. of the ancient times. Yes. It's a catapult. It, this one, it's from, I think, yes, fourth century B.C. It throws both arrows and even stones. If you place a stone here with made of leather handle, you can throw stone from here. There was also a flame throwing machine a weapon. We have not made an exhib- exhibit because we have to test it first, and it's uh, a little bit difficult to test it because we have to find a special place. The fire is not easy to handle. But we have Thucydides wrote about this, how the Boetians burned down the wooden fortification walls of Athenians in uh, 5th century BC using this flamethrong weapon. Yeah. And we have the first steam cannon of the history. It, they say that it was designed and made by Archimedes in. 3 th- uh, 3rd century BC, they use let's say a bowl made of uh, metal bone, of uh, ball of iron, I think, or a uh, rock. They put it in the in the cannon and they light fire here beneath the cannon and as a smaller volume of water falls in the Cannon produces steam, high-pressure steam, and the steam pushes this wood and this part here. It breaks it, and the ball. You can throw a ball in a distance.
1: Wow, is yes, it's some, was it a hundred over a hundred? Uh, yes, over 100 meters. Just, they wow.
2: said. Yes. A model of this cannon was made by Leonardo da Vinci. who have. Uh, Communications.
1: All right, yeah. So that's how you... This is part of your educational
2: program for the students. Students, kids, they're using these flyers to send messages to each other. In second century BC, engineers from Alexandria came up with uh, an idea that you can communicate or send a message using torches. So they used two separate walls. One with 5 torches, the other with 5 torches, it's 5 to 5, 25, because Greece has 24 letters in its alphabet. We have 6 to 5 because we want to use an uh, English alphabet, okay. a Latin alphabet.
1: So you work a lot with the, the local schools, spring there? Yeah. Yes. More Latin.
2: than uh, 20,000 children, oh. children yes. per year.
1: Oh,
3: yes, they visit both buildings, Uh including Sundays. Mm -hmm. They mostly, with the teachers, organized uh, these things as groups. Mm -hmm. From school groups? From school School. groups. But uh, we have lots of children during Sundays at workshops with their parents, Mm -hmm. Uh, family activities. Family activities or workshops just uh, for children
1: without their parents. Oh, it's okay with the Germans.
2: <laughs> you just as you find an an eight, and you pass it through one hole, mm. and you just write down the letter. Then you go to the next one, the next letter, and the next, 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 and mm. in the end you have a phrase. You have the message.
0: This, this is
3: beautiful. this is more like an idma. We're um, looking at the perspective, perspective spectacle lines. The holy supper there, yeah. and yeah. the school of Athens mm-hmm. here.
2: Yeah. So. Uh, you can see how we connect art and mathematics.
1: Yes. And that's been one of your key focuses yeah, yes. since you came in. What you did is very interesting. You know, others would maybe just retire and relax and you decided you're going to go back to school. Yes, because I fall in love with the museum
3: and art and the uh, people working here not only here but this yes sector and to be true you have to be good to, with numbers mm-hmm. to rule a museum not mm-hmm. only with uh, art and science yeah yes yeah.
1: of course for well. you've done yes. uh, very well the exhibits are so I, I did the hard work yes.
2: <laughs> this is a pointer for the moon a pointer for the sun here are Thirty, three hundred, three hundred and sixty-five 365 lines for the days of a year. And here are the zodiac cycle, Krios, Bull, uh, Twins, Leon, Virgin, Scorpio, Sagittarius, all the, And you can see us The sun moves too and you can see the relative position of moon and sun in the sky for every time of the year oh it's It's such a beautiful
1: mechanism i can't even imagine trying to figure that out now with all the with all the technology i have at my fingertips (laughs) being able to well i can see why you you love Working in this place and introducing this wonder to mm-hmm. visitors and young people and people who come from all over. So, just lastly, you know, as you're working with a lot of children, how would you? What are your thoughts on how we can improve, like our educational models around science, technology, and the arts? You know, for it to be more interdisciplinary, or what? What are your views as you encounter children and their wonder about these things?
3: They they love it very much. They they don't know. Uh, ever hear anything about it before. They can try to use it. We have videos with we have Lego games and they play and understand how it works, not even this but more of the exhibits. It depends on the age of the children. We discuss about physics, about the mathematics, simple mathematics or engineering, engineering. yes. And the most important thing is that they try with their hands to create, to draw, to put the one Lego on the other Mm -hmm. and to see how it works.
1: Right. Yes. Yes, It is so important not just to be a theory. I think the the notion of play and discovery is very... and you can... Experimentation, yeah. And you know, you know, our technology is changing the way we're communicating with mm-hmm. ourselves, our imaginations. We're advancing it, accelerating the, this enormous rate. It's hard to keep up. But what do you think, I mean, even as you're celebrating technology and engineering, what are those things that you feel we should remember about the past?
2: I think that technology, I think that ethics... But have to run a little bit faster to not to be overcome by the technology. I think that we have to keep our human values and we have to remember that we have a history of wars maybe, technology maybe, maybe, but we have a history of creating art and literature and other things that they have remaining through the centuries. So. We love to follow the technology, but we have to remain people, human. So
3: don't only use technology, mm-hmm. create technology. Okay.
1: Yeah. Exactly. No, well, it's wonderful. I, this, this whole museum is really a celebration of imagination yes. Yes. and creativity. Yes. So thank you both for that uh, beautiful message and what you've created here with the Herr Kleiden Museum. Thanks so much uh, for adding your voices to the creative process and for encouraging the next generation of uh, creators, inventors, artists. Yes. Our pleasure. Theodosius Tassius, welcome to the creative process. We're now in the Heracliden Museum and we're looking at different exhibits and models that you've designed. And could you tell us please, which were of the different mechanical exhibits that you designed, which do, were your preferences for working on?
4: a preference to some of the exhibits of yes. of the actual exhibition at the Eurekaidon Museum? Yes. Yes, how did,
1: yes, and how did you go about it? What was the whole process of, of creating those exhibits? Yes. Well,
4: as, as far as the, uh, the entire exhibition is concerned, which partly is uh, dedicated to the automata and the other one is, is dedicated to the military technology, it is obvious that the most exciting one it could be the the, the walking servant, the automaton of the walking servant not only because I have imagined to combine two automata of the ancient writers Philon of Byzantium and Heron of Alexandria the one talking about the automaton of the uh, servant of wine and water and the other talking about the moving theatre, uh, both being automata, of course. So I imagined one day that um, it would be very interesting and and almost almost obvious to combine the two in one and make the automatic servant of Philon of Byzantium and make make it to to walk and to approach the clients. In fact, the the two mechanisms. Described in details by the two writers, let me uh, remind you that Philon of Byzantium has written by the middle of the third century BCE, and um, heroron of Alexandria was roughly speaking uh, lived uh, during the, the years of Jesus Christ, so to say. The two mechanisms were known. That they were, I would say, realized or or copied, in you know, a sense, with some difficulties. Especially the one of uh, Philon of Alexandria or uh, Philon of Byzantium, because it contained very original mechanisms based on the atmospheric pressure, whereas the mechanisms of here of Alexandria are more elementary, based on simple mechanics, simple kinetics of a, a weight which goes slowly down by gravity. So the mechanism of the automatic servant, the contrary, is based on, 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 on the pressure of the atmospheric air on two recipients, as you may have seen, of uh, containing wine and water. And the mechanism is quite complicated. My solution about the, the production was uh, simpler of what was finally selected in the actual model you have visited but anyway it, the result is satisfactory and it is gratifying to see that the ancient Greeks imagining the automaton working only in the palaces of ancient gods on top of mountain of Olympus then finally were able to produce themselves in reality these automata if you have one recipient one vase containing the ancient Greek wine, which is a heavy wine, it necessitates water anyway because otherwise you cannot drink it. And the other recipient of water both being hidden within the the body of the servants, the the only way one of the of the of the most most delicate ways to make the two flows military technology in ancient Greece and in all ancient uh, cultures was something similar um, to the actual one meaning that there were no limits in financing science and technology was uh, always available towards in favor of the uh, defense of the the country therefore um, it is true that the same thing had place in Syracuse in the year, let's say, roughly 400 BCE, in the year 400 BCE, in Sicily, which, as you may remember, was the part of the Magna Grecia, the, the great Greece of people in the south of Italy, and uh, it is, a, a, it is a really a, a mechanical miracle. And uh, happily enough, in, in, in our exhibition on military technology, we have a complete model of such a rather light uh, model of a torsional catapult, the metallic parts of which were found in Epirus, near Yanina, you know the Greek city, uh, and are dated to the 2nd century BCE. We have in this part of the exhibition, which is torsional, but it is only for arrows, and with this light and simple model we were able to succeed a firing of a arrow to a distance of only 100 meters but if we if we repeat it under better conditions it could be as large as during the ancient greek times which is more than 150 meters so this is my second preference of a distinguished exhibit in this
1: uh, series of uh, exhibitions. Manor. Well, it's, so, it's so fascinating, and I think that what the Heraclidian Museum is, does so well is to capture some of this sense of wonder of what you've, you've spent you know, a lifetime imagining yourself into the imaginations of ancient Greece. Greece, and to pass that on to younger generations, to their educational initiatives, I think it's so beautiful. If they could only have a um, fraction of your sense of wonder, I think that it's it's accomplishing something. But what do you find most fascinating about imagining yourself into that time?
4: I'm very young, actually. I'm 90 (laughs) years old only. Yes. Therefore, I wish, I hope, that uh, God will give me... Uh, Some time to finalize my 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 opus magnum, as we say in Latin, yeah. <laughs> my encyclopedia for the ancient Greek technology, and then hopefully that it will be translated in English, uh-huh. because I'm I'm writing it, the the chapters that were written in 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 English, they are retranslated into Greek actually. So it is the only the only thing I humbly hope. But mm-hmm. in the meantime, you know and and i'm sure that you are with your own interest actually and thankful for it you are contributing to the change of attitude of the international people on, on regarding the ancient greek technology there is a considerable change thanks to the international research on the subject not only in the previous centuries it was mainly french and and, and german but more than, say, half a century ago, the, the international research is, is Anglo-Saxonic in the United States and in Britain. And, and, and thanks to all these uh, research and, and, and the developments in, in, in my own country, we have a, a, a very vivid international interest. And this is good, you know, not only in order to increase our knowledge about what we call the miracle of the Greek culture, against the monopoly of philosophy and science itself, but, but in favor of economy and technology also, because there is no culture without technology in the economy, of course. And these, these components of the culture, of the ancient culture, were underestimated in the past. Actually, hopefully, things have changed, and I'm satisfied. And that's why I'm I'm grateful to you, Madam, because you are with your own interest. You are you are contributing to this change.
1: Thanks so much for contributing to our understanding and for sharing your wonder and your knowledge and adding your voice to the creative process.
4: I will be glad to to be helpful in the future.
0: I'm Nina. A student at Pace University. My field of study is English with an emphasis in publishing. With the creative process, I'm an associate interviews producer focusing on creative writing and music. Throughout these interviews with the many important figures at the Heracliden Museum, I have really been in awe at the true passion and curiosity curated deep within. It inspires me to learn more than ever before I specifically want to touch on the power of combining arts with technology, as the ancient Greeks did so eloquently. For me, this really brought me back to my film developing class, where I was able to use technology to bring my art to life in the darkroom. I used light, specific chemicals, and techniques that allowed me to bring my art together. Oftentimes, through trial and error, I had prints that came out wrong, blurred, or spotted, but those were often my favorites, as they showed art through a new lens. The power between learning technology and expression through art is tied together through delicate strings that are often small and barely visible. However, these strings bridge advancements, society, and people together. Being able to learn how the Greeks turned art into technology is beyond fascinating to me and enables me to find more curiosity in the world today, beyond the outlets that are comfortable to me. So I thank the Heracliden Museum for inspiring me to dive deeper and be curious. Paul Firos,
1: welcome to The Creative Process.
5: Hello, I'm glad to be here.
1: So I've had the pleasure of visit your Heracleiden Museum in Athens and also doing interviews there and touring your wonderful exhibits that I also know have traveled to different countries as far as China in terms of exchange programs. But just tell us a little bit about the genesis of this museum. It wasn't, it's, it's gone through iterations to the museum that we see today.
5: Yes, well, the founding of the museum is actually the result of a combination of being collectors of arts and the desire to share this with uh, others. The collections were built, so to speak, where we live most of our time in in the U.S. But then we decided uh, that perhaps Greece was ready for a private uh, museum and we also were very much interested in neoclassical buildings. So we combined uh, buying a neoclassical building, in the end we ended up buying two, in order to host our collections and and turn it into a museum. So the trajectory was quite uh, straightforward. Having all this art in our homes was not really uh, the, the thing to do. So we found this you know, classical building, we renovated it, and then in uh, 2004, we opened as a art museum. And we, in the beginning, we exhibited uh, our collections, but soon we got in touch with other museums and we started exchanging collections. Uh, and all this was doing fine until the fateful year of 2009 when the economic crisis uh, came upon. However during that period of time we realized that there was a great need for an education program, not necessarily art itself, but we had uh, as part of our exhibitions, we had an exhibition of NC Escher where there is a lot of math involved and we started a program educational program based on math and science which is a topic that i personally like very much since i studied that and we decided uh, to expand this uh, thing that was once a week into a daily thing and um, instead of having just one classroom we ended up having three classrooms the education program really took uh, a hold very well. It was well done, it was presented by professionals. It was not just museum employees teaching. There were university professors, students who were graduates of university. You know, and eventually we became well known for, uh, for that. And that's when we made our first uh, choice of converting the museum from art museum to uh, a math and science museum. And from there, it was uh, one step to look at ancient Greek technology and realize that there was a lot of material available to do uh, a museum on ancient Greek technology. There were other museums um, doing that already. But we decided to follow a different approach. There is an association of the research of ancient Greek technology in Greece, headed by only by professors of university and so on and so forth. So we came into an arrangement, long-term, I have to say, it's a 20-year agreement that we signed, whereby they would do the research on ancient Greek technology, and we would present those great results, let's call them, in our museum. So the difference is that every single object that is exhibited in our museum currently is, has been approved by a professor who did the research on that particular topic. So uh, there is nothing there that is left to the imagination of of somebody building something and saying that's how the ancient Greeks did it. Everything has been based on a uh, research that we've done. And I believe that this is what differentiates us from others, is that when you walk into our space, you know what you will see is what it was 2,000 years ago or more. And in the process of uh, discussing this with, uh, with that association, we were selected by the Chinese cultural ministry to be the exchange entity. Uh, They were looking to exhibit in Greece uh, ancient Chinese technology. And we, of course, would be providing the ancient Greek technology. And that's what we did. It was a very difficult effort, but in the end, we exhibited something that was seen by more than half a million Chinese people. We went into three different cities. And when it came back, then our museum became the home of this exhibit. And uh, we also have a a different approach in exhibiting because we do it uh, thematically. For example, if you come, you may see about architecture and you're not going to see a few objects, you're going to see the evolution of architecture in ancient Greece. We recently had the war technology, and war technology means all sorts of things, from armors to uh, mechanical devices and all that. So when the visitor comes to our museum, he gets to get an overall uh, idea of of what it was to be living in ancient Greece and the kind of technology that they had available at the time. So this is, in a way, we've decided that this is going to be the permanent, let's call it uh, objective of our museum is to show ancient Greek technology. There are a lot of things related to that. One of them is obviously the education program, which to us, when I say us, it's not only the museum stuff, but my wife and I who are the founders of the museum. We strongly believe that there is for the newer generation to understand that a lot of the things that we use today, their origin goes way back. Of course, not exclusively ancient Greek technology. There were before that other things, but at least coming to our museum, they understand that those principles of physics And applied mathematics were very important at the time. And we assume a number of things that can only be done today, but in ancient Greece, Greece, they knew exactly the distance, not only between the earth and the moon, but they were able to measure the distance between the earth and the sun, and we're talking about a very small percentage difference. So I think that when uh, students are exposed to this knowledge, they, they can bring things down to scale and realize that, yes, the smartphone did not exist at the time, but the, some of the technology that's there evolved and evolved from the simple basic rules that the ancient Greeks had established.
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting and I loved, I mean, I spent, you know, some hours touring it and I was also lucky to interview Theodoro Tassius and his son as well, who, who I happen to know, who is also a, a scientist in a different way and a, and a poet. So it's interesting because, you know, in that time period, Yes, your museum is devoted to science and uh, ancient technology, but it's also combining, I would say, the arts. and, and, And in that time period, the way the arts and the sciences were not so separate, do you know? I think that there's this interdisciplinary quality, which is one of the other, you know, great legacies of Greek culture that we would do well to, to remember is that we do need to have these cross disciplinary discussions that help us, you know, and when you visit, as I, when I, I, the exhibit that was on, when I visited, was showing some ancient war technology, but there's a, the artisan, the the not just war technology, but the, there's the artistry into creating these things and the armor and the work involved.
5: Well, it was not just functionality, what was important for them was form and functionality and form was translated into art. So you probably saw also the exhibit about uh, how they were making uh, statues in bronze with the Lost Walks. So they were combining their knowledge of physics and math in order to produce these statues, it was very important for them that the representation of the human being was very proportionate. But this implies a lot of mathematics, because you don't start sculpting something without knowing that the head must be x times the height of the body and all that, so they had Uh, Already by the time we saw these amazing uh, sculptures come up, they had already mastered the proportions, the analogies and all, all that.
1: And also, I mean, in terms of being advanced, you were talking about being able to see distances, and even also there's this amazing timepiece uh, that you have there uh, that shows, you know, your very early computer. Really, that's so exciting, and it must be so exciting also for the uh, the young children who visit. Can they get just just to explain a little bit of this background?
5: Yes, well, the Antikythera mechanism, as it is called, is the first example of an analog computer. By analog, what we mean is that by moving a part of it, all sorts of events occur triggered by what you call gears. So that implies a lot of math because you have to have the proportion of each gear when it's a small radius versus a big radius. And but all this ends up in uh, describing extremely accurately the movement of the planets, and it is fascinating to realize that probably around 200 BC they had already figured out the, the planetary movements, including the recession of the equinoxes, which is a phenomenon that occurs. Every 13,000 years, it takes 26,000 years for the Earth axis to uh, come back to its original position. So to measure this and to translate it into a gear that will represent the position of the star, because obviously with this, the position of the stars changed. And of course, to them, eclipses were very simple to figure out because of all this knowledge. So yes, it is fascinating, not only the astronomical aspect of it, but the because this whole equipment fits in one foot by four inches by, I don't know, I mean, it's a a miniature device. Therefore, they had the technology to produce these small gears and to produce them accurately so that this thing would be useful.
1: It is really uh, amazing to think that so many people have spoken to us and shared in our interviews and podcasts how uh, they've been in, are continually inspired by ancient, well, contemporary Greek culture, but so much of the foundation of their thinking by the from from the Stoics to you know the principles of playwriting. So, what what for you is the legacy? of ancient greek culture and what do you think what are the principles as well well perhaps
5: the big legacy that the ancient greeks what's the word passed on to us is this it's not the greeks who invented astronomy astronomy was already being uh, studied by the assyrians the babylonians and it's not the architecture where 2000 years before that the Egyptians were building a humongous temples and all that. It's the research that they did. They were not satisfied by looking at the stars and reading charts. They wanted to figure out the formula behind the charts. And the same thing can be applied to philosophy to play writing, to writing history, to do all sorts of things. It was always the desire to understand what is that drives these things. Aristotle is considered the biggest uh, philosopher of all times because he questioned everything and he needed to get down to the roots of everything. And you look at the philosophers, Socrates and uh, Plato, They were all always looking to find the origin of something. And this is perhaps the legacy that new people, meaning not just Greek, but around the world, must understand that this is what we must always do, is go to the source and dig until we find the origin.
1: So tell us a little bit about your, you know, origins. You, you know, you weren't, you're Greek, but you, you've actually lived in a number of countries. You've founded your own business when you came to America. Just tell us a little bit about, about that journey, your life before becoming a founder of museum.
5: Well, before that, I'm, as you said, I'm Greek, but there is a group of Greeks from Egypt. That's where I was born. This is where my parents were born. There was a huge Greek community in Egypt. And then with the events of Nasser and all that, uh, we, uh, my parents, that is had to leave, went to Greece, I finished my studies. I did, went to university in France. And from there, uh, through, after a couple of uh, small uh, employments, I ended up in the U.S. So we emigrated with my wife there and I... Within a year, I founded uh, my company, which was uh, devoted to software development for hotels. And that's what I did uh, for 27 or so years. In the meantime, we had two daughters and we, we made the U.S. our home. And eventually we started accumulating art and as I said earlier, we decided that it was uh, a better place to exhibit this than to keep them in our drawers in, in the U.S. So we brought our collections to Greece uh, once uh, we had found a home for them, and that's how the museum got its start. Now I sold my company, and uh, I'm retired, so we live half the year in the U.S. and the other half in Greece. So that's a little bit of, uh, in a nutshell, my, my background.
1: Yes. I understand. Well, it's very beautiful and interesting, and I think that it's great that it's you know it's not you haven't focused merely you know just on business. There's a whole it's it's all the disciplines or all different aspects of culture that you're bringing together, and that's what I was also so impressed when I you know my last visit to to Greece and to Athens and to your beautiful museum. But it was just this over the I think in. In Greece, it is very strong that there's this, I don't want to say interdisciplinary, but people are not defined just by their profession, but they feel perhaps a responsibility and maybe it has something to do with your educational system, your humanities education system there, um, that uh, people... You ask someone, you know, what they do, and they might be, I don't know, a doctor, but they're a poet, but they, you know, <laughs> studied architecture. <laughs> but you, there's this kind of great curiosity. That's what I found in the general public. And that's certainly something that we are inspired by. And we hope to share that, foster that curiosity in, in young people. I think that it's really important. Yeah. Perhaps
5: that is the legacy of the ancient Greeks to us. That we want to do more than uh, just one thing.
1: Yes, so I'm I, I love to to hear about, about all of those aspects. I would you know encourage you know anyone when when travel is more open for them to visit the Heraklion Museum, or also alternatively if you know, when the exhibition may come to your city, you know, to take in those contributions ancient Greece culture, or we should say, you know, I know that you've also done kind of monographic exhibitions, M.C. Escher or Keith Haring, This is Through the Pan Mm -hmm. Art. I do want to touch on that too, because your activities as a collector, I mean, you have some really important collections that are extensive. And in terms of works on paper, I think like some of the the, the largest works on paper collections of particular artists. And what drew you to works on paper? And I have to admit an interest in it as well because our traveling exhibition has included paintings. The paintings are difficult to transport. So uh, a large part of it, we design it around, like works on paper, they, they travel much easier and mm. it's
0: good on the environment too. Uh,
5: they not only travel much easier, but you can get more of them. Paintings, you can only get so many paintings before you run out of budget, and therefore you only get a very narrow glimpse of the artist. If we were to have one exhibition of Lautrec, we could barely afford one or two uh, paintings. And therefore, your view of Lautrec will be just these two paintings. When we do exhibitions of uh, Lautrec that works on paper, where more than 200 exhibits are available and encompassing the entire life of the artist Uh, okay he didn't live too long but certainly he had an evolution Uh, then the visitor gets a better understanding of the artist so we focused on mc escher we focused on uh, lautrec we focused on Vasarelli. Those are the three main, well, we also have all the works that an American artist, Carol Wax, did. We even produced a catalogue raisonné of her works. So all these uh, are works on paper for a very good reason. Uh, So I think that I I really
1: love what you're doing. I look forward to days when museums can be more embraceive as they were but I think that you know the with the other initiatives we'll do all that we can to to spread the word and that we have over 75 participating universities and so many of them with you know good Greek study departments Mm -hmm. as well. So uh, and a number of our students very interested and the various contributions to, to
5: Greek. They may, be, they may be interested, they may be interested because we want to establish what we call the Heraclidon Academy. And this would be a way for foreign universities to subscribe to our webinars, specifically for ancient Greek technology. So that would be a good way to enrich their curriculum by having their students follow our our webinars on ancient greek technology
1: oh that's great yeah we invite creative responses as well but yes we're doing with some we're working with the experiential learning um, programs as well with within those universities and they do uh, curriculum integration side by side so i I just think it's it's so essential and we're really appreciating it now in terms of uh, these uncertain times that we have to remind ourselves of principles and norms and ideals so many of uh, those things that we we owe to to Greece and Greek culture. And just in closing, you know, I do ask. Uh, it's important for us to think about the future, and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation. So, for you, what is it? What are the things that you think are important for young people to know, preserve, uh, and remember?
5: Perhaps all this can be encapsulated in one sentence that Socrates said. I know one thing that I don't know anything, which means never assume that what you know is enough. You must always seek more knowledge because only through knowledge can you find happiness even, or at least you will be aware of your surroundings and all that. So my advice to the next generation is spend more time learning when you're your mind is still ready to accept new knowledge. Because once you get to uh, your 40s or 50s, you are too much into surviving. But if you invest more earlier, you will be surviving much better than the rest of the people around you.
1: I think that that's very good advice. I think that yes, we can never learn enough because only then can we make informed decisions. And also to know that every, so much of what we hear are opinions and so we have to, we have to be critical of, of them, even some things that are presented as facts as well. Well, I want to thank you up and, of course, everyone at the Heracliden Museum in Athens, which I encourage people to, to visit, and if not in person, then online or through these webinars. I thank you for what you've given us in terms of your celebration of Greek culture, past and present, moving it forward for next the next generation. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
5: Thank you very much for having me.
0: The creative process podcast is supported by the Jan Michowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Nina Hook digital media coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hoped you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for a review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.